everyone, Matt here. Uh, welcome to War Machine. Um, for those who've been following along with the show, uh, you'll know that we recently did an episode reviewing a Terrence McKenna interview that he gave back in 99. If you haven't heard that, I welcome you to go check that out. I'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, and yeah, it was something a little bit different and I felt like it worked out pretty well. Uh, as it turns out, some others enjoyed it as well. And, and in fact, our friend Matt Valor, who's been on the show before, uh, dropped me uh, an unexpected voice note, which I, I really appreciated and I thought was interesting for a number of reasons. One of the things he was saying kind of centered on the idea uh, of, what I, of what I think McKenna was referring to as attractors or strange attractors. Um, and the Im implicit teleological aspect of uh, complexity, I guess, in morphological terms. Anyway, the point is, uh, it reminded me of some of the things Clayton Crockett writes and talks about, uh, who I know is also a reader of Barad and interested in discussions of energy and new materialism and that kind of thing. So um, I passed Valor's note along to Clayton to see if maybe there was something in there he might want to respond to, uh, which he did and is appreciated. By the way, as it turns out, I think this is I think this is okay to mention, but uh, Clayton said to me that he's been working on a book called Energy and Change. So I thought that was kind of uh, on target, I guess. Um, so we'll have to have him on the show when that is published or or close to be being published. And then something about what Matt and Clayton were saying reminded me of something Tim Ingold was talking about when we spoke with him last year. Uh, and so I cut that part of the discussion in as well. And so then Petra also responded in what I felt was a very personal and medita meditative way. Is it the word? Meditative? As well as somewhat critical, I think, but in a good way. And yeah, I really like it. And the whole thing started to feel like a game of trans-temporal telephone or something. Except, of course, we're, we're not interested in repeating exactly what we've heard before, as you do with, with telephone. But uh, as Valor says, we're just riffing or, or improvising. You know, in a sense, all conversations are transtemporal. Um, that's just the nature of conversations in a way. But, but then there was something Federico was saying when we were talking to him recently about doubling your presence, which is to say, uh, living simultaneously in the present and the past. And, and also that all of the past is equally the past. So as I take it, the idea there is, you know, something that's happened a million years ago is as, as much the past as what has happened, you know, a minute ago. Um, I'm still kind of thinking the implications of that through, but anyway, I thought it was uh, an interesting idea and, and, and considered in that way makes what follows not so much asynchronous, but yeah, as I said, a, a transtemporal game of telephone between the present and the past, between the living and the dead, in the case of McKenna, rest in peace. Well, anyway, uh, whatever it is, I hope you enjoy it. Um, I thought about adding my own response as well, because there are certain threads in each of the responses that I was really tempted to, you know, take and weave together, but then that kind of seemed... Uh, antithetical to the project, which is really aiming toward 
I think I've said this before, um, toward a more multi-vocal, multi-timbral, multi-valenced kind of thing. Um, so yeah, to that point, if anyone out there wants to respond to anything you hear on the show, drop me a voice note, you know, through Messenger, or you can send me a note through the website, which is entheosdesigns.net, and I will try to include that in one of these kinds of episodes. You know, I'm not, I'm not really interested uh, at all in censoring my or anyone's, uh, any one person's voice. And, uh, excuse me, I would love for this space to develop into something, you know, as I said, more multivocal. All right, last thing, all of the music for this episode was provided by Hawaiian artist Hello Meteor. I'll link to their band camp in the show notes. Check that out, support their music. And that's it. Peace. Hello. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey, Matt. I am standing under the colonnade of uh, the Wesleyan Chapel in Red Ruth, which is a town in Cornwall, and it's blowing a gale outside, and uh, I don't know how well this audio is going to come out, because uh, there are cars going past and trees hissing with the wind and the rain, but anyway, uh, you're often on my mind, and I often think, oh, I just want to write something what I really wish is we lived near and that we could go for a beer every now and again and I could run things by you. But um, I, I never actually get the time to write anything down. And now I have 10 minutes. I thought, right, I'm going to record you an audio message uh, as a way to communicate. So anyway, I hope this works. Um, I'm really pleased that you got War Machine going again with Petra. Um, and I, I, um, I listened to the, the, the episode with Justin uh, just earlier this morning, um, walking an ancient mining trail called the Great Flat Load, L-O-D-E, which is like a you know strip of metal in the ground. So it was, um, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Really, really loved it. And um, yeah, I had some thoughts then about the uh, the episode with McKenna, and I thought I'd just riff for a second. Um, so partly it was walking up Red Ruth High Street after I got back from this hike, and. Uh, I think I've maybe said to you before about this part of Cornwall. This is the place where that big cross was. I took a big picture and you commented on that before. It's the same area. I like to come back here. And it was an area that for a while, about 200 years ago, pretty much when this church I'm standing underneath was built, it was one of the richest, if not the richest square miles in the world. And now it's you walk up the street and you can't believe it. it, it everything is dilapidated. Um, there are very, very... You, most of the, the stores that are here are, um, are like thrift stores. Uh, it, it's just a place that... It feels like it's got no future. And I was thinking about this idea of the end of the world and of time accelerating and complexity intensifying and then this kind of point of singularity where history collapses. Um, and maybe I'm not saying anything new and maybe this isn't really what McKenna's saying because he's talking about it at a kind of, uh, not even planetary, but uh, it sounds like a kind of universal level. But 
you know, one of the comments that was made in the, by uh, Petra and by um, Justin was the um, the idea that, you know, it depends who you are as to whether your history is ending or not. And I feel like here I'm walking, I'm walking up a post-apocalyptic street. It's like history has ended. And, and everything in this area of Cornwall, all the cultural references are about the history of mining and, you know, all of the glory of the uh, 18th and 19th centuries because there's no sense of what this place could be in even the 20th century, let alone the 21st. So I thought that was interesting. I was just interesting listening to that while being in a place like this where I felt like I was walking in a place after the end of history. Um, also, I was thinking about uh, the, the stuff on... Well, lots of thoughts from a kind of new materialist perspective. So, so my work recently has been... Um, you know, I, I've been into Barad, and then I was at this conference. Uh, I think you maybe saw something I posted where, which, where Terence Deacon was involved, and so he has what to me seemed quite similar to McKenna in terms of um, a theory of complexity that is about accounting for form. So, in the context of the second law of thermodynamics, how do we explain form and uh, so he provides this kind of um, e- a, a, a kind of evolution, evolutionary history of human consciousness so that you can explain human consciousness as um, uh, emerging levels of complexity that can be derived from basic physical chemical processes. And so you're not saying human consciousness is the result of some external magical actor like God or you know some homunculi but that actually um i mean essentially the argument is thermodynamic processes can be shown when uh they when an external energy source is applied can be shown to create what he calls morphodynamics which is the a kind of physical formal structure so it's not like if you left the universe to its own devices, it, it, it wouldn't still tend towards chaos. But in the play of all the forces moving about, normal thermodynamics, orthograde thermodynamics, can create uh, what he would call contragrade effects that creates a kind of orthograde morphodynamics. So you create a form. So a Bernard cell in a, a heated pan is an example. So the, the water uh, convection currents operate more efficiently by rising to the surface in kind of hexagonal structures and then the um, the uh, heat then dissipates down into the rest of the water and that's a more efficient mode of convection. So you've actually created a structure through the mo- movement of thermodynamics. And he's saying, okay, you could take the same process if you had, contra- if, if you had two orthograde morphodynamic processes like uh, uh, creating a kind of auto catalytic process for example so you have a chemical reaction that um, uh, that produces an enzyme that then is part of catalyzing the next um, uh, chemical reaction uh, that then um, the byproduct of which might be something that would start to form a shell around the uh, um, 
the chemicals that are creating the, the, the catalytic reaction. So you end up with a process where of autocatalysis where the, the products of one reaction become the reactants for the next reaction and that byproducts of that might create a shell which then protects that process so it can then function for a much longer period of time. And so this, then, he says, is morphodynamics leading to thermodynamics. Uh, sorry, not therm- uh, teleodynamics, so end-directed goals. Uh, and that those end-directed processes um, are, are then, then you're into the space of life because you're into something that then can start to work towards its own reproduction. Um, and so then he tries to give an account of how, you know, the principle of, of teleodynamics then could create forms of emergence that lead to much higher levels of complexity. And we could imagine that might lead to something we call human consciousness and what we might call intention. So you go from intentional processes as indirected but without necessarily having conscious intention to something intentional. Um, anyway... So the reason I was saying all that is that it seemed interesting to me the idea in what McKenna was saying about um, the, the, the notion of um, causality with the idea with like the marble that, that kind of goes up and down the side of the bowl uh, and what is it that causes that? Is it the preceding event that causes it? Uh, or is it the notion of an attractor, which is um, a kind of product of uh, of of complexity? Um, so I was at this conference recently, and I was trying to contrast Deacon's work with Barad. And you said something in there about um, Barad's notion of uh, space and time being being produced with matter, and. I feel like that speaks to notions of causality and how do you actually account for causality. It seems to me that the idea of someone like Deacon, who can kind of create an incredibly complex and quite credible, it sounds very credible, account of how meaning emerges from matter um, and you you can trace that all the way back to kind of very basic physical chemical processes, still relies on a notion of causality that says that one thing comes before the other thing and therefore, uh, you know, what just happened is produced by what just went before. Whereas there's something about what Barad is describing in this kind of uh, mutually entangled production of phenomena where uh, causality is much less clear I don't know if any of that made sense, Matt. I, I, so I'm wrestling with those things at the moment, trying to understand what I'm trying to describe as like the materiality of narrative time. And so this comes back to my ideas about translation of place. Increasingly, I've started to think of place as a kind of meeting point for multiple temporalities, that that would actually be the way to define what we mean by place because you've got this kind of sedimented build-up of uh, the production of phenomena repeated according to quite a predictable pattern, which is what creates geological time, for example. But that kind of time is a completely different kind of time to um, the time I'm in right now telling you about standing underneath the colonnades of Redruth Methodist 
chapel because I'm only going to be here for 10 minutes and it's a it's a kind of very swift narrative interlude and but I can tell you about the history of Red Ruth and that's a different kind of time but it's still a completely different narrative time to geological time so there are all these multiple competing temporalities and the fact that they continue to sediment uh, and kind of almost crash into each other in this place is what makes them a place why the it's why we're talking about this site as a place or the kind of this geolocation as a place is because it has meaning it's a it's a place worth talking about as a place because multiple temporalities crash or fold over each other here in ways that they don't at least from a, a human meaning making point of view in other places as much um so anyway those are some things i've been talking about that's just me riffing uh right i gotta go and um get my kids uh but i just wanted to send you a message um to, anyway just wanted you to know that um i really appreciate all you're doing and uh yeah think about you often just hope you're well and um uh yeah appreciate the way you bring people together it's just definitely a gift to me in in, in my life and work so um, anyway Cheers, Matt. Uh, talk more soon. Um, hope to take you around Cornwall one day. All right, mate. Bye. After the tone. Hey Matt, um, thanks so much for reaching out to me and uh, uh, inviting me to respond to the McKenna podcast, the, the talking about and, and evaluating McKenna's final interview with you and Petra, but also, um, and maybe more specifically, Matt Valor's sort of riff in response. And so I guess this is a little bit of a riff on his riff, but starting with McKenna, and his argument that complexity and order increases over time in a kind of accelerating asymptotic curve that um, means that or suggests that the universe is a machine that uses complexity to build on as a platform for more complexity. And this acceleration of generation of complexity upon complexity upon complexity reaches a kind of um, transcendent or singular singularity point called the Omega point, which uh, I think Teilhard de Chardin um, maybe was the person that introduced this. So I'm very skeptical of McKenna's argument, um, and I think that the the you know for me like I guess questions are perspective and scale, and we could say that a certain kind of complexity has been increasing for us and that this has sped up um, in on earth and within human history and in terms of human technology again over certain spans of time but these may be arbitrary in terms of starting points and i don't know how one could 
sort of attribute this to the entire universe and think that the universe itself is becoming more complex just because we are um, becoming more complex. And again, this complexity defined in certain ways may or may not apply or fit with this definition in, in others. So again, I just, I think that's interesting. And I think that's symptomatic of what Matt Valor is talking about in Deacon's work. And so in my book, uh, Energy and Change, I just, just sent in the final manuscript and it's going to be published next year, 2022 by Columbia University Press. But I do engage with uh, Terrence Deacon and with Karen Barad. And what I hear Valor talking about is this question of causality, but it's really a linear causality in, in, the, in, in the sense of McKenna's talking about, and that's what's so problem about it. And I think he's right that causality is much less clear when we're talking about Karen Barad's work and when we're looking at the quantum level. But just to go back to Deacon for a second, um, I think that he is too teleological in his sort of movement from what he calls thermodynamics to morphodynamics, which is the creation of a form with a kind of non-equilibrium thermodynamic dissipated processes, to what he calls teleodynamics, which produces what he calls an autogen, an autogen being a kind of abstract thing that would be capable of self-replication, self-repair, self-reproduction in a way that um, can become or can be seen to become identified with life at some point. Uh, I think this work is fascinating. I think it's important. I think it's really rich. Uh, and I really, um, you know, am, am, am skeptical and critical of that movement because I think that you could say that what he calls teleodynamics is really a, a, a sort of particular form of morphodynamics. And I would see morphodynamics, I guess, more broadly as encompassing both what he calls thermodynamics and also what he calls teleodynamics. And I mean, we could talk about certain kinds of dynamisms and even teleodynamisms, say, in, in Bill Connolly's work. But I, I think that these teleodynamics are overdetermined in Deacon and in many others, um, certainly in in terms of McKenna, but that's very crude and and oversimplifying. Um, I think Deacon's is much better. And what I think uh, that Deacon's sort of helps show or helps me see is that there's a kind of ways in which there's, you know, thermodynamics or morphodynamics or these dynamical processes work in terms of constraints. And these constraints are things that um, tend to dissipate useful energy or um, things that we might call complexity or order. But these constraints can also work together. And he says it's a kind of ratcheting that could that actually can can sort of delay or um, create a kind of metastability that it doesn't stop thermodynamics, it doesn't reverse thermodynamics, but it, it kind of like allows a certain kind of interaction or entangling of processes that that retards or, or slows down 
the the dissipated process for a while. It doesn't stop it. It doesn't prevent it, but it can kind of, you know, slow that down. And it seems to be some kind of way of these ratcheting of uh, interacting of constraints that, you know, in a larger sense, um, Valor is talking about place as this meaning place, the sedimentation of, of different temporalities and temporal narratives. But I would think about also with Barad, and I think that this this could work. Um, obviously, causality is much more complex, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist at the quantum level. It's not linear. Um, space and time or space-time seems to be an emergent phenomenon uh, with matter and what she calls the apparatus, which seems to provide a cut, an intervention in reality that creates this kind of or allows for this kind of, of matter and meaning, a kind of way to narrativize, a way to, to articulate or locate uh, a place and a, and a time um, to, to distinguish this from that. And I guess I would, I would want to say, and, the, and I get really fuzzy and confusing because I'm not a scientist and I'm not a mathematician and I'm not an expert, but I'm just trying to understand these con things conceptually. But I think there's a kind of ratcheting that takes place at the quantum subatomic level, a kind of ratcheting of constraints in a way that allow for uh, subatomic and then atomic and molecular particles to um, create certain arrangements and, and eventually produce certain forms. One of these forms is what we call space-time. One of these is, is place. Um, and that, that somehow this occurs. I mean, um, Valor mentions these Baynard cells. And one of the things that we've seen in these Baynard cells is a kind of hysteresis, uh, which is a lagging. It's, a, it's been described as a kind of physical memory. And so this lagging seems to be like a constraint that delays, right, is a lag. But what that constraint does is it establishes a kind of a cut, like Barad's talking about with the apparatus, that cuts into reality in such a way that it makes it easier for, for what we call nature, matter, energy, mass energy, um, existence to, to follow that pattern in the future. And so these constraints for me, operate on, on all levels, at least that we, we know about. Um, and I think, you know, strings, string theory, that's so speculative. We have no way of, of having any kind of experimental verification of, of something like that. But we do have a pretty good experimental ver verification of these subatomic particles and, and, and in some of the ways that they interact, even though it's very strange. So I guess I'm thinking about Deacon and Barad sort of together and maybe trying to check what I see as some of the teleology of, of Deacon, but seeing this ratcheting effect take place morphodynamically as well as atomically or subatomically uh, in, a, in a way that, that brings together this, this, um, this matter and meaning in the way that, that Barad says. And she says that her notion of interaction does constitute a reworking of the traditional notion of, of causality, which I think Deacon adheres to too much and McKenna much. Too. And here in this notion of causality or this interaction, the phenomena become differential patterns of mattering where the apparatuses are not merely 
observing instruments, but boundary drawing practices, specific material reconfigurings of the world which come to matter. And it doesn't have to involve humans, it doesn't have to involve consciousness, but there are these boundaries that get created. And I think there's a kind of ratcheting effect that cuts into the processes that allows for certain phenomena to come to exist materially and matteringly, if that makes sense. So that's kind of a riff, and I'll just read a quote from Barad here, where she says that reality is composed not of things in themselves or things behind phenomena, but things in phenomena. The world is a dynamic process of intra-activity and materialization and the enactment of determinate causal structures with determinate boundaries, properties, meanings, and patterns of marks on bodies. And so her agential realist ontology gives her a better way to describe and articulate and make sense of that. Uh, I think that it is, it's been described and I, I would agree that it is new materialist. I think that there are other ways that we could think about this and describe that. And I think that we could with Deacon as well. I'm not sure about McKenna though. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm trying to think through energy and, and energy flow and how energy works uh, at all these levels and, and through all these multiple processes um, to kind of give a, 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 an overview or a comprehensive, it's not comprehensive, but uh, I guess a broader general understanding and picture of energy and change and, and, and how that works using some of these different um, kinds of, of, of phenomena. Um, so there you go. Thanks. Bye-bye. life, or, or, or what we're calling life, is the unfolding process wherein beings of all sorts come into being and are held in place. It's a dynamic field of forces and energies, of flows, within which things of different kinds emerge. And even the soul, you know, that, that people who anthropologists call animists, you know, they, they often do have ideas about the soul. But when you look closely what they mean by a soul, as um, Michel Serres has put this very beautifully, what they're meaning by it is a vortex, a vortex. So it, it's not some sort of inside thing. It's a winding up of the whole field of relations in which you find yourself gets kind of wound up so that a living, a particular person is an eddy where the flow has somehow got, um, has been going along, so it turned in on itself. Uh, and that turning in on itself, where the, the whole movement gets wound up into the core of a living being, that is the soul. And when you lose your soul, it's not like this bit, oh, you lost it somewhere, you've got to go and find it. It's that you've, it, that it's, dissolved back into the flow. So there's this fascinating thing that about life and death, that for many so-called animistic people, actually when you die, you rejoin life. And what, what, what happens is that, is that a living being is, is kind of 
like a like an eddy, the the movement is is pulled aside for a moment. The living being is 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 holding up against the flow of life, and it takes a lot of energy to keep this thing together. It's like it's like if you imagine you're in a in a powerful river, you know, and 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 you're trying to keep some hold something together and prevent it from being washed away. It takes a lot of energy, a lot of work, and 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 then gradually, as a person ages, they they lose that energy. They don't have enough power, and then they die. Which means that basically they can't hold out against the current of life anymore. And it's quite a beautiful idea, really. And and but that's that's rather central to an animist way of thinking. So I wouldn't want to think of it as some sort of curious, exotic, odd, other cultural way of understanding life. I'd like to think of it, and, and my colleagues too, as a, as a very coherent ontology, but also one that you kind of work out as you go along. And, and, and one of the troubles with putting ism after anything, like animism, like Buddhism or, or something like that, it makes it sound as though it's all worked out, that it's a system. And that's the one thing it isn't. One of the remarkable things about people who live by this ontology is that they don't know. They're, they're somewhat at the mercy of things. They can disagree with one another about meanings of words or invent words as they go along. And there's this, this, and, and there's a persistent sense of actually of anxiety and insecurity. I mean, actually, it, it's not an easy kind of life because the, the ground you tread is always uncertain. You, you never quite know what's going to happen. And, and, and so you have to pay a lot of attention to things. Hi Matt, I just listened to the recordings you put together. I think they work really well together. I know that you're afraid that they make out a kind of bromance thing, and I think they do, but I like it. I was listening to it on the bus here, I mean Oslo in Norway, uh, and I went here by train and by bus. Uh, Oslo is not so far from Stockholm where I live, but since I don't fly these days, traveling takes a lot longer. Uh, so it took seven hours uh, on the bus uh, and the train. And the last uh, two hours I was sitting next to this Russian lady with very strong perfume and listening to Russian pop music. So I tried to shut everything out and I did that first by listening to you. Uh, your conversation, or not you, but the recordings, the recordings you put together, and then uh, by listening to Emily Harris, and I haven't been listening to Emily Harris, I don't know, since I was twenty-five or so, uh, and I, I haven't, I for many years, I haven't been sitting on a bus like leaning my forehead 
uh, towards the, the window, staring out in the dark at the landscape, passing by, just listening to music for for an hour or two hours. But these days I find myself doing that once again and I really enjoy it. But it also gives me this sense of reversal of time and also a sense of time slowing down rather than speeding up. In some respects, I, I think it is. And that has to do also with what we talked about in the McKenna episode uh, that uh, he's at the peak of of some, uh, I mean, in the late 1990s when that interview is made. There is a time before things are changing uh, and before the we are becoming more and more aware of climate effects and so on. Norway the, is an oil-producing country of Scandinavia, or well, used to be, but now they are also making this reversal, uh, planning to drill, uh, to store carbon dioxide rather than to cause more emissions. And when listening to your to that conversation that appeared in the mix you made, that also gave me that sense of reversal of uh, time travel. It was like I was 18 again, sitting up all night talking to my friends about the universe, about causality, uh, together kind of searching for the grand theory of everything. Uh, and and I really love that, but that uh, also made me wonder: is that the reversal that we want? And and it made me start thinking about uh, when Karen Barad and the new materialism came into theory. It was like this whirlwind. It was wonderful because it decentered man. It decentered uh, anthropus, made room for more, for other voices, uh, more bodies. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it also uh, it also released us, I think, as uh, complex uh, relationalities and as, as kind of multiple uh, thinkers as, I mean, as bodily, uh, as... Um, full of affects and full of different times and places. Uh, it dethroned and decentered and and scattered the knowing and able human subject. And I found that it was uh, it was liberating also for me, uh, having been brought up, uh, feeling I should be that kind of anthropos. And and so it, it made room for for something new and other parts of me, I think. But but once that kind of liberation is 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 done, uh, and once the Baradian kind of playground is the one we are at, when when that is the ground we are at theoretically, uh, I wonder is there also a risk that we kind of reverse <laughs> turn back into McKenna's the kind of know it alls uh, who are talking again about uh, how things truly are. Uh, Norway and Sweden, the countries that I've traveled between today, uh, are very similar, I think, to a non-Scandinavian. But to me, uh, they are both very similar and very, very different. I there's a striking, so many striking differences on on a tiny kind of detail level. The languages are different, but they are uh, similar enough for me to understand uh, 
Norwegian, but I, I really have to, to try hard and to listen carefully. Uh, so those, uh, and there are also these cultural kind of minor differences. And that may, and, and now when kind of entering into this, this country from, uh, through, through that long journey, I had the sense of entering a parallel kind of universe to my own country, but a very, very pointless parallel universe. I mean, if you would think that there was, if you would think that there was a meaning, a point to things, to to parallel universes, you would think that they would have uh, a kind of more valuable existence, or that it would be more obvious why why these parallel universes exist. But but they but there is no point. And that's just it. They 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 just appear. They have just appeared, uh, and and that is precisely I find what makes, um, well, what what makes uh, the mystery infinite. <laughs> there is no end to the strangeness of things. It just gets weirder and, and weirder and weirder. And, so, no, but I mean, and that is what is so. Uh, I mean that is what I want to take with me from uh, from the Baradian playground, uh, which uh, is also which also keeps that kind of nerve of of uh, liberation and of uh, like a constant <laughs> dethroning of uh, of uh, the Anthropos. Uh, so well, those were just my initial thoughts and and ideas. Uh, so, Matt, bye-bye from your female friend uh, in Sweden. I, I really like the mix you put together. Uh, we'll talk soon. Bye.